0: Good morning. Good morning. There we go. God forbid we should have some enthusiasm about being in the Lord's house on a Sunday morning, right? If I were to ask any of you to, to, to come up here, uh, whether it's up front here in front of everybody, or whether it's in your workplace, or even just on the street if you were asked you know, by, by somebody, uh, if, if I were going to ask you to kind of concisely and persuasively share the, the, the gospel with another person, right? Don't, don't raise your hand, but how many of you could, could feel like you could confidently on the spot without giving it much thought kind of do that with a persuasive eloquence of some degree that is cohesive, right? You're not just babbling, but you can kind of have a, you have an answer ready for that if someone asks you, you know, you, you could articulate that really well. How, how many of you would feel that way, right? I think all of us, to some degree, feel a little unqualified to do that. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the reasons I think that we don't evangelize as much in the world around us is because, for many of us, we, we just haven't really been taught how to do that. Right? How to, to share and how to articulate the gospel. How do, you, how do you start a conversation without being the weird person that just kind of comes up to somebody and says, you know, have you met Jesus as your Lord and Savior yet? I'm just trying to buy a turkey for Thanksgiving. Like a giant eagle, I don't want to get into that, right? How do we get to the point where we have the conversation? But more importantly, if you have the the, the in, if you're at the point where someone asks you, well, what is the gospel, right? Can Can you articulate in some kind of semblance of a way what it means to live under the grace of Christ? What does grace mean? When I was in undergrad, there I had an evangelism class. It was a required class for any ministry major of any kind, <clears throat> and they walked us through this model called evangelism explosion. And raise your hand if you've heard of that before. If that sounds, a handful of folks that, that sounds familiar to you, right? Um, it was, uh, for all of its goodness, and it was a good system at the time I learned it in college. It was already starting to become a little bit culturally outdated um, to, to, the, to, the, to the kind of millennial and Gen. Gen X, certainly for Gen Z, right? And so we have these models that teach us how to evangelize. One of the ones that the EPC is pushing really hard right now is called the Three Circles. And I would encourage you to to spend some time looking that up. Well, actually, we're not going to have a big push for that next year, but we're going to introduce that to some of you guys next year, and you'll have the chance to kind of look at it. It's a great way through drawing to share the basics of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ in a way that makes sense. So if you're sitting in a restaurant and someone asks you about your faith, you can kind of get a napkin and kind of really speedily and well-articulated, draw that out. But, but for many of us, it's just not where we, we live. We, we would share more, maybe, if we knew how. But we talk about grace a lot in the church. Right? If you have a Sunday that goes by where I don't mention the word grace at some point in the worship service as your pastor... You should probably fire me, right? You hear that word all the time. We talk about grace when we pray. We talk about grace when we sit at the Lord's table together and partake of communion as a means of grace, right? We talk about this word a lot, but do we really know and understand what grace is and how it works, What is grace? It's a word that is a church word, but it's also kind of a secular word, right? How many of you have had, you know, bills with a grace period of some kind, right? Like when you do something, like if I were to fall down these steps, but I did it in a way that made me look like I was doing a dance move, that would mean that I fell graciously, right, somehow, right? Like we use it in all kinds of different ways in the language of our time, but do we understand what grace really is and what it means for us? How many of you could articulate, if I, if, if I were to come to you and sit in a restaurant, well, what is grace even? What does it mean? How many of you could really articulately tell me? I would venture to say probably fewer than us than we might expect. Right? And I don't say that to make you feel kind of silly, like we should be able to, but it's, just, it's a buzzword in some ways that we use in the church that we haven't really dissected well oftentimes. Right? And so this morning, that's what we're going to spend our time with. We're going to dissect and dive deeply into what grace is, what it means for us. And we're going to answer three big key questions. The first is, what is grace? The second is, how does Jesus manifest and bestow grace upon us? How does grace come to us? What does it mean that we have it and those kinds of things? And how does Jesus mean or personify grace to us? And then third, how does this grace shape not just our eternal life, like fire insurance, but how does it shape our everyday life? In other words, how do we live in light of grace that we receive as Christians, as followers of Jesus, right? And so let's begin this morning by standing together and rereading our, our main Advent text. It's from the Gospel of John, verse chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and then once we've read through that, we'll kind of get started and dig in. The Holy Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Far from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. First, what is grace? At first glance, this is a simple kind of term to define, right? The, the best, the most common, I guess at least, definition that I've heard and that you've probably heard is grace is the unmerited favor of God, right? Unmerited meaning undeserved, right? And so grace is the favor that we get from God. God's favor is upon us somehow, and we don't deserve that favor, but yet he still gives it to us, right? Some of the other ways that, you know, you could simply say grace is getting things that you do not deserve to get. There's good things that you, that you receive from God that you don't deserve in any way to receive, but you get them anyway, right? When, when, when I, I, my son didn't eat his dinner and then wants a cookie, if I give him that cookie, that's grace. He didn't earn the cookie, but he gets the cookie, right? And so that's kind of the first. It's this way, kind of this attribute of God. In other words, grace is God's tendency to give us favor when we don't deserve it. It's something about who he is by, by the very nature of himself. God is gracious. He's in the business of giving things that we do not deserve. Right? Romans 3.24 says, We are justified by his grace as a gift. Right? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So in this case, grace is a part of the nature or the inclination. Right? God is gracious. Most of us know that one and understand that one to some degree, but we can't stop there because there's other passages that suggest some things about grace that might go beyond just that simple definition. See, the word grace shows up in in all of Scripture, in the ESV translation at least, I'm sure there's other variances, but in the ESV it shows up 131 times in all of the Bible, seven of those in the Old Testament, 124 in the New Testament. A lot of talk about grace. Most of those words come from Paul. I think like somewhere over between half and two-thirds of the times that grace appears in the Bible, it's Paul writing about grace, right? Which makes sense because of when he would have written and where the epistles fall. But grace is mentioned all the time. And here's here's just one mention of the word grace from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. So grace abounds in us. And so because grace abounds in us, what it does is it causes us to have all the sufficiency of all things of all times so that we can do every good work. So grace here isn't just about the tendency of God to give us undeserved favor, to look upon us favorably, but grace here, Paul suggests, that it's somehow the primary means through which he is able to do every good work that he does. And so grace isn't just a way of God, kind of an inclination of God to be gracious, to give us unmerited favor, but it's actually a tangible thing that we receive, and grace is the power that fuels Paul's work, he says, grace, when we get it, it causes us to be, to be sufficient, to have all things in all times that we need so that we can be equipped, right? There's a power that is a part of receiving grace. Right? And so it's not just grace. Well, grace means that I'm forgiven for my sins and when I die, I can go to heaven, right? There's, there's something beyond that. It's, it's, it's also applicable in the here and the now. When God bestows his grace on you, He is empowering you in some way. John Piper says it like this. Grace is not only a disposition or a quality or an inclination in the nature of God, but is an influence or a force or a power or an acting of God that works in us to change our capacities for work and suffering and for obedience. And so grace is is a power in us. It enables us to to do things. So it's both this unmerited favor and that what we receive from God is what we don't deserve. And he has this natural inclination to be gracious, to give people that even though they don't deserve it. Kind of like we do with our children, right? If you have kids, you're inclined to give them what they don't deserve all the time because you love them and you just want to bestow grace on them. It's It's a natural thing to want to be gracious with your child. So God has a natural inclination to offer grace to us as his people. But it's also this power. In other words, it justifies us and saves us and then empowers us to live and move and have our being in him. So those are the two ways that we define grace. And before we go to the next question, one more thing. A lot of times we talk about grace in conjunction with mercy. And I think we can fuse the two a lot of times because they're said in tandem and, yeah, there's some overlap, but here's here's the key differentiator. Grace is receiving that which you don't deserve, right? Generally things you want to be receiving, right? Mercy is not receiving that which you do deserve in a bad sense, right? So if your kid deserves a swat on the head, and you don't, it's mercy. If your kid doesn't deserve a treat but gets it, that's grace. And so simultaneously, like those are, those are interrelated things and they play together a lot. But the mercy of God and the grace of God are very different things. The fact that you woke up this morning alive as a sinner deserving of death is mercy. He's merciful to you. You didn't deserve to get up this morning. I didn't deserve to get up this morning. We should all be dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But yet the Lord allowed us to arise and to live this day. That's mercy. You shouldn't be here, but you are. Grace is a very different thing. It is him giving us something. Not just withholding or choosing not to withhold something from us, but giving freely so that we might be empowered to live for him, right? God shows you mercy. And his mercy is new every morning, right? Lamentations 3, 23. But grace is this gift that we get, this empowerment that we get, that is the nature of God to give when we do not deserve to have, right? And so that's the first. Now, that's our working definition of grace. How does Jesus embody, personify, manifest bestow on us that grace specifically, right? A couple couple things. To understand this question, we have to go back to Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind because we need to understand how sin entered the world that God created before we can understand how grace comes into the place of that, right? And so a couple things to note. Genesis 3, the Lord had created the world. Everything was beautiful and perfect, Everything worked in harmony. There was no strife. There was no illness. There was no disease. There was nothing of the sort, right? God created Adam, and then God made people, creatures, and had Adam name them, and then found that there was no creature that was made that was suitable for Adam, and so he created Eve, and we have the first wedding in Scripture, and he creates this perfect complementary being to complement Adam, and Adam complements Eve, and the two of them together kind of fulfill the purpose, and we have this first marriage, and it's a beautiful ceremony, and Adam looks upon her and essentially says, whoa. Right? That's why we call her a woman. Whoa, man. Right? Right? Not just because she was attractive, but because of the beauty of how God made her to just perfectly fit him and vice versa. Right? It was majestic and beautiful. And more than anything, the real beauty of the creation before the fall is that it says that Adam and Eve walked with God. They walked with him and they talked with him the way you and I talked to each other after church out in the lobby over donuts. Right? It was that, that intimate and that connected and that simple. If they had a question about something about how the world worked, they could go to God and say, God, what, what's this all about? And he would say, oh, I made that for you so that you, could be, so that you could enjoy it this way. And this is what you're supposed to do with that. And they would go, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. I said, yeah, it is, isn't it? And he's like, yeah, how great are you? It's so, like, yeah, holy, 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 right? And then everything was majestic and beautiful and perfect until the fall entered through Eve eating the fruit. And sin entered the world. And the fall messed all of this up. It introduced sin, and sin stains everything. Right? It stains our ability to seek and do any good, to think right. Right? We, we think we think right, but we think wrong because sin messes with our thinking. Does that make sense? That's why a lot of times people have opinions about things in this world. I want to go, listen, you, you better like, listen to other opinions because who's to say that you, like, your, your mind is just as sinful as your body is. Right? So sin messed up our ability. It also messed up our ability to in any way move in the right direction. But here's where it really messed us up. It reoriented our compass and our inclination away from God rather than toward him. Right? Before Eve ate the fruit... Their inclination was towards the things of God. They wanted to be a part. They wanted to be relation with him. They wanted to ask him things. They wanted to go to him. They wanted to pursue him. They wanted to see all the beauty of what he had made for them and how it works. And they wanted him to guide their every step of the way. And then she ate the fruit. And all of a sudden, they wanted to not seek God, but be their own gods. So what Romans says. Worship the creature rather than the creator, right? Sin messed that up. And the worst thing that happens as a result of sin isn't so much the curses and the punishment that God doils out to them, but it's the fact that they are removed from his presence. The removal from God's presence is the worst effect of sin and the fall of man. They were banished from the garden. Right? We see the first act of grace, actually, is that God clothes them, even though they don't deserve to, right? What did he say? If you eat the fruit, you'll die. they eat the fruit, they're not dead. They get banished from the garden, but he clothes them. So he shows that even in the midst of his righteous anger, he still loves them. There's a gracious act that is committed there. But they are banished, and they are out of his presence. And from the moment that happens, the Old Testament is a picture and a story of mankind trying to get Back to the presence of God. Everything about the Old Testament is for God and His people to slowly begin to restore that relationship. And God is the one who moves and and acts in that situation to try to restore the relationship, right? God in the Old Testament is redeveloping the presence slowly that He once had. And even though sin separates them and all these kinds of things happen, uh, we see all of these little pieces of what God is doing towards that end, right? And so we see the presence of God show up in the Old Testament, but what happens? It's always veiled in some way, right? Like Moses doesn't walk around and see God standing there and they just talk, right? What does he see? He sees a burning bush. Right? Or the angel of the Lord is sent. Or a person has the presence of the Lord manifested in their dreams. God speaks through, through dreams a lot, and especially in the Old Testament, right? It's always veiled. And then when, when the law is given, it's, it's unveiled a little less because it's, the law is really just God telling his people how he wants them to live. And so it's a, it's a way for them to get a little closer to his presence yet again. And then the the temple gets gets kind of brought into the the mix of things and we see the presence of God, right? It's the it's the fire and cloud and all those kinds of things, but they're all manifestations of presence somehow. Not that God isn't with them, but it's this veiled experience. As a matter of fact, people in the Old Testament, they're scared that if they would ever actually look at God face to face, they would just die because they're not holy and he is holy. And if they were in his presence, they wouldn't even be able to survive the radiance of his glory. Right? The very height of the presence of God in the Old Testament is the holy of holies inside the temple. It was a spot at the very, very center of the temple or the tabernacle. And once a year, the high priest of the Israelites, only that one person that one high priest, one time per year, would go in, right, on Yom Kippur, and he would offer atonement. And There was all kinds of rituals that he had to commit just to be in what they would consider to be the most kind of manifested thing of God's presence. God was present more directly in the Holy of Holies than anywhere else. And so if they didn't wash just right or do the right kind of ceremonial prep to go in, it was believed that they would die Jewish tradition holds that when the, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his ankle and send him in so that if they heard that he had died in there somehow or he didn't come out after a certain time, they could just pull out the body because they weren't allowed to go in to retrieve it because that was the presence of God. It was so holy and so exquisite and so exclusive that one person, one time in one year could go in and be in the midst of it. Right? The presence of God is veiled. And so how does Jesus factor into this idea of grace and presence? Well, we get a clue in Colossians 2. Here's verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And here's the key. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled. In Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God, everything that God is, dwells bodily in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus manifests grace to us in that He carries with Him the fullness of God's presence. This is how John says it in our Advent text. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I love the the message has a really great paraphrase of this. We don't consider it a Uh, Authentic translation, but Eugene Peterson does a really good job sometimes at nailing kind of the verbiage. He says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus' incarnation, the birth that we will celebrate, because he is fully divine, because he has the fullness of God within his bodily form, when Jesus comes to earth, it is the fullness of God's presence again with the people it's the first time since Genesis 3:15 that God's presence has been fully with his people and so Adam and Eve could walk and talk with God the disciples and all those who followed the rabbi the teacher could walk and talk with Jesus who is the fullness of the divine Godhead He's every in every way, just as God is. Jesus is synonymous with God, and so when Jesus is on earth, God is on earth, which means when Jesus sits and eats with his disciples, God is again present fully within the world. That's the grace. That's how Jesus brings grace to us. He brings his presence back into our lives. Where it was veiled before, It is here now. We get to be in the presence of God. Throughout Jesus' whole ministry, he was fully present. Just like in the garden, right? They could walk with him, and so Jesus can do the same. It wasn't deserved by us, yet he still came. The one who created entered his creation. It would be like you painting a painting and then living in it. That makes no sense how can I live in a right the creator became present among the created that's how much grace he bestows upon us I understand how belittling to the personhood of God it is to enter his own creation in an immortal way to experience humanity That in itself, we talk about the cross as this act of humiliation. To assume even human form as a divine being is humiliating enough. But out of the love that he has for us and the gracious nature that he has, he sends his son to be the presence of God among the people again. That's grace. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to stand within a thousand yards of God. But he enters into our midst. That's how Jesus manifests grace. And he takes it further, right? His grace of his presence is perpetual. He dies to take away our sin, and then we might all experience that same presence, right? We will follow him in death, and then we will follow him in life, and we experience it forever. That's what heaven is all about, right? Heaven isn't escape from hell. Heaven is the fullness of God's presence. That's why we look forward to his second coming because that's what we want. We want to be like Adam and Eve before the fall. We want to be able to turn around and say, God, we want my job to be completely, entirely obsolete. I'll be unemployed in heaven. But I'm going to guess there's really good social security, so it'll probably be fine, right? Because you won't, you, you, you'll be able to just, we'll just all talk to him. He will be our priest, our pastor. I'm excited to be unemployed for that reason, right? That's the beauty of his grace. And he ushers in God's presence and then secures our pathway to it for eternity to come. And so we come to our last question. How does grace shape our everyday life? Let's go back to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Grace gives us, gives you and I, power in the here and the now, right this moment, to be shaped into God's likeness and to do good. It's a force within your life that can transform you, and it does it in a couple ways. First, John 1.14 talks about the Son who comes full of not just grace, but full of also what? Grace and truth, right? In John 14, he talks about grace and truth. One of the things that God's grace provides to us through Jesus is truth in a world that is full of lies and deceit, in a world that tells you what's important when it isn't, in a world that focuses on the things that don't bring life, in a world that distorts the way that we feel and think about others and, more importantly, the way that we think and feel about ourselves, God comes and grace, and part of what grace is, is that he brings truth to our life. He destroys the lies of the world. When we live under grace, God slowly removes the blinders that the world places upon us by giving us his truth. And the longer we walk with Christ, the longer we explore what it means to be a follower of him, the more he works within us, his spirit shapes us and draws us to him and starts to feed us the truth to combat the lies that the world sells. The world tells you you're not good enough and there's nothing you can do about it. Or the world tells you you're just a good person. God says, no, 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 you're wretched, but I make you clean, actually clean, right? When you come here, you don't have to worry if you're good enough or strong enough or faithful enough or obedient enough. I I take care of that. I will clean you up, and I will make you more and more like me. As you go through the years as a follower of Christ, I will instill truth in your hearts. I will shape who you are at the very core of your being, and I will make in you a new creation, it's one of the ways that God's grace works for us in the here and now. You are not the same Christian you were a year ago. You have been shaped and transformed and grown. Maybe you grew this much. Maybe you grew exponentially this year, but you grew. You understand things about the way that the world is supposed to work in light of God's kingdom that you didn't understand before. You, you, you know more scripture than you did before. You understand more about the nature of God and who he is. You have given small parts of your life to him in faith that you wouldn't have trusted him with last year. And you've seen him be faithful and it's encouraged you and emboldened you to maybe step out in deeper faith and more important things that's what we call sanctification, right? The Lord shapes us slowly over time to trust him more and more and moves us to be more and more in his likeness. It shapes us to want things God's way. And the other way is that we get to experience the favor of God in light of our sin. Romans five twenty tells us, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Paul then goes on to say, should we keep sinning so that there be more grace? And he says, no, 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 no. Like, don't, don't take that too far, right? But the more sin comes, the more grace flows. That flies in the face of the person who says, I am too far gone. I know grace is a real thing and that people can have it and receive it and experience it. But listen, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what thoughts I've had. You don't know what acts I've committed you don't know what relationships I've shattered over the years. You don't know how messed up I am and how messed up my thinking is. And God would say, listen, you can't outgrace me. You can't outsin my grace. It's not possible. Like The more you sin, the more my grace just flows. You want to go toe-to-toe, like, it'll just keep coming. Like If you're in me and you put your faith and trust in me... Then, then go ahead, I mean, try me. Like, I, I will just continue to pour out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Right. As a matter of fact, in, in, in John 1, in 16, that's what it is, right? We have received grace upon grace. A better translation of that will be grace heaped upon grace. Grace following grace. The phrase that John is using is suggesting that there's just this endless supply of grace. Here's how Martin Luther puts it. This is beautiful. The sun is not dimmed and darkened by shining on so many people or by providing the entire world with its light and splendor. It retains its light intact. It loses nothing. It's immeasurable, perhaps able to illumine ten more worlds. I suppose that a hundred thousand candles can be ignited from one light and still this light will not lose any of its brilliance. Thus, Christ our Lord, to whom we must flee and of whom we must ask all, is an interminable I don't even know what that word is interminable well the chief source of all grace even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels still it would not lose as much as a drop this fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace the grace of god is boundless it's like drinking from Niagara Falls. You can't, you're, you're never going to go thirsty from it. It doesn't matter how far gone you are, the grace of God can pick you up and transform you and reshape you. Both in the sense that you will be with Him in eternity and experience the presence of God, and in the sense that He will empower you in the here and the now to trust Him. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds to experience truth in the way that you've never experienced it before right? so that when you look at yourself each year in and out you will experience a continued growth you will come to seek more truth you will understand him more deeply and you will trust him more wholly. that's what grace does for us the gospel is an invitation to to gradual wholeness and fullness in God's loving, caring presence. Right. And we're all members of that club. It's an undeserved club. None of us deserve to be there, but we're members of it. We get to be there. Come on in. The water's warm. Right. Next week, we're going to look at the ultimate kind of end of all of this grace, and we're going to explore the, the majesty of Jesus in our final week of Advent. And we're going to look at the last, just the last verse of John 1 through 18 and kind of explore that a little bit. But for now, let's pray. Lord, we we stand in awe of the grace that you provide to us. Lord, we thank you. When we encounter and experience your grace, a lot of times our response is just to to shy away because we don't think we deserve it. And Lord, your response is, No, you don't, but here it is. So we pray that you would open our hearts to accept your grace. We pray that we might trust in you. We pray that as grace abounds, we might more and more understand the way the world is supposed to work, since you're the one that made it, and you're the one that knows how everything is supposed to be. And we long for the day where we res- everything is restored just to be that way. We long for the way, the time that we can walk with you and talk with you and experience the fullness of your presence that you secured through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who is our manifestation and means of grace. We thank you and we love you. Together, all of his people said, Amen. Amen.